0: Let's split up and look for clues. Shag, Scoop, you go this way, while Daphne, Velma, and I will go the other way. Welcome to another episode of the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo, the podcast where we delve into the mystery of Scooby-Doo media, getting clues from people who helped bring our favorite mystery-solving dog to life on various platforms, and maybe eating some Scooby snacks along the way. I'm your host, Alexa Lawler. Scooby-Doo, where are you?
1: And it would have been mine if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. Gang, we've just been handed our next mystery. Blasted meddling kids. Scooby Doo!
0: This week, I had the pleasure of chatting to Scooby-Doo and Guess Who writer Mark Hoffmeyer. Mark wrote two episodes for the show, A Mystery solving Gang Divided, which features the ghost of Abraham Lincoln and the Funky Phantom Crew. And Attack of the Weird Allosaurus, which naturally features Weird Al Yankovic. And just as a side note, in a few of his stories, Mark mentions Dawes Butler as being the original voice of Scooby-Doo and Astro from the Jetsons. However, I believe he was actually talking about Don Messick, who voiced Scooby and Astro, while Dawes voiced other characters like Yogi Bear and Huckleberry Hound. And for the Scooby franchise, Scooby Dumb. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm good.
1: How are you, Alexa?
0: Good. Thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. It's fun to talk, Scooby.
0: Definitely. Um, So if you're up for it, I'd like to start off with a quick three-question trivia game.
1: Uh Uh-oh, okay.
0: (laughs) Um, So question one, who had the most appearances on the new Scooby-Doo movies? A, The Three Stooges, B, Batman and Robin, or C, The Harlem Globetrotters?
1: Uh, I'm going to say The Harlem Globetrotters.
0: That is correct.
1: I used to have to answer the trivia at Hanna-Barbera when I worked there, so...
0: Question two: Can you name three villains from the original Scooby-Doo, Where Are You series?
1: Three villains? You know, I don't know if I specifically can. It all it all gets so mixed together too, because my era there when I was at Hanna-Barbera was a pup named Scooby, and also they had finished up, just finished up the thirteen ghosts of Scooby-Doo. So, uh, I, uh, Vincent Price was was he wasn't a villain though? I don't think he was like sort of their guide, wasn't he?
0: Yeah, in the 13 Ghosts he was. Yeah,
1: okay. So I actually can't do that. I can't name a specific villain.
0: Yeah, no problem. Um, and question three, true or false, the Funky Phantom has appeared twice in Scooby-Doo TV episodes.
1: I'm going to say yes.
0: It is true, yes. Okay. Once in Guess Who and once in Mystery Incorporated.
1: Yeah, I, hey, I know he appeared in one uh, since I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: to start off the general questions, uh, what's your relationship to Scooby-Doo? Did you grow up watching?
1: Well, yeah, I grew up watching Scooby-Doo. And then um, the really cool part about it, in in, uh, the late 80s, I joined Hanna-Barbera as uh, a, I worked in the publicity department. I worked as an assistant and then I sort of moved up to arranging interviews for a lot of the voice cast and stuff. So I not only got to see a lot of the production stuff on Scooby-Doo, and then my very, very first piece of animation writing was I did a a short rewrite on a scene as sort of a test for one of the producers, and that was on a pup named Scooby, uh, which was really fun. Uh, But I used to get to take um, Dawes Butler out to do interviews where he would talk about Scooby. Uh, and, and so that was really fun because Dawes was, uh, the original voice of both Scooby and Astro. And so, uh, he would, he would talk quite extensively about that. And that was really, really fun.
0: That is awesome. Do you remember which Pup Named Scooby-Doo episode that was?
1: I have no idea. I know it involved, was it Velma in a chair with curlers on or something or a barber chair and it was spinning around? So I don't remember the, the specific episode uh, name, but I remember, I, you know, what I remember was, you know, around that time they were doing a lot of shows that were like babyfied versions of classic shows. Like, you know, they were doing the Flintstone kids and they were, that was, that was the big pitch that people would make us. Let's make it a babyfied version. And, but I remember thinking that the pup named Scooby designs were really, I, I thought some of the cutest of that era of, you know, like, you know, Muppet babies and all that kind of stuff. I, I thought the way they redid A Pup Named Scooby, it it looked really cool. I thought it was really well done.
0: Definitely. Yeah, I love the designs on that one.
1: Yeah, it it just looks great. It's a really fun show.
0: And did you ever watch the new Scooby-Doo movies, which also featured celebrity guest stars?
1: I think I've maybe seen one of them. A buddy of mine wrote the one uh, uh, with with the wrestlers, one of the most recent wrestling ones that came out. Okay, um, and now I'm trying to think. Was it John Cena? Maybe. I'm trying to remember what wrestler was in in the movie. Um, so I've seen parts of that one, and and I think they hold up. I think the fact that, I think it's great that Scooby is one of these timeless characters that sort of everybody relates to. And and what's great is I remember the you know the early stories uh, about how the show was pitched by Joe Barbera was that he wanted to do a sort of a serious mystery show for kids you know and so he had the van and he had the kids and that's why you know some of the original backgrounds are kind of scary um and then one of the network execs he was pitching to said you know um well, i think this might be too scary and just he said well what if we added a dog what if we added a talking dog and his buddy and that's sort of how how that idea was birthed was it came from not wanting to make it too scary and i think he really had great instincts for, for finding something that people and and kids in particular can relate to.
0: And why do you think that adding the formula of having celebrities on the show works?
1: I think it gives it a really sort of terrifically fun, almost like a movie of the week for kids, you know, because around that time there were a lot of like movie stars would guest on, you know, movies of the week. That was a big thing. And, uh, I think, I think, uh, you know, when I was a kid in the 70s, they had, I think, was it the Sunday Night Mystery Theaters on, I want to say, NBC, and they had, like, McMillan and Wife, and all uh, all these, uh, uh, they had McLeod, um, and, and there were all these movies where people solve mysteries, so I think it was sort of a thing at the time to do, and I think it just, you know, throwing in guys like Don Knotts, and, uh, you know, Jonathan Winters, and, of course, the Harlem Globetrotters, who were just great at that time. I, I remember going and seeing the Harlem Globetrotters live with with Curly Neal and Metal Ark Lemon, and they were they were not only amazing athletes, but they were such great showmen that it added this great component to see them in animated form, you know, doing their stuff with Scooby. You know, and guys like Jonathan Winters, you know, what what a great take. And then, you know, Sandy Duncan, I think, was in there. And for the stars, it was great because it was an easy... I mean, that's an easy day of work, actually. They don't have to get into makeup. They don't have to, you know, memorize their lines. Uh, and, and that doesn't mean it doesn't take skill and talent to do the voice acting, but it's it's just different. So they can just go into Hanna-Barbera and do a recording and, uh, you know, and, and have fun like that. So I think, it, I think it worked out very well.
0: And if you could pick anyone to guest star in Scooby-Doo and Guess Who, and if you also got to write the episode, uh, who would it be?
1: Oh, it would, for me, the huge fear would be Patton Oswalt. I, I, I love him. I think he would get into it, Um, you know, because he's got a daughter, uh, uh, a young daughter, and and he's just, he's done voiceover stuff. He's a very fun guy. I think it would be fantastic.
0: Okay. I'd like to delve into a few general questions first, and then kind of go off into a few more specific questions about the two episodes that you wrote, if that works. Sure. So to start off, when did you know that you wanted to be a writer?
1: Uh, I knew uh, in high school actually. I, I did a lot of writing for the high school newspaper, and I, I I wrote some poetry, and so I sort of knew by high school that I wanted to write, uh, and I didn't know exactly how or where or what that would mean. So I I've sort of since then I've always I've always been writing, and so then when I got into college uh, out here in California, I I was also writing and. Like my roommate and I in college did our own um, sketch comedy show. We wrote and produced a sketch comedy show in college. I wrote a bunch of short stories in college. So, uh, and I wrote for the newspaper extensively. So I sort of always knew that's that's what I wanted to do. And, but I also liked performing. So uh, it just sort of came down to, in my case, that I, I was making more money writing than I was performing. So,
0: And how did you get into that publicity job for Hanna-Barbera?
1: I had a friend of a friend, Hanna-Barbera at the time was owned by a company called Taft Entertainment and they were based in Cincinnati and Bill and Joe had sold Hanna-Barbera to Taft Entertainment I want to say in the early 80s, late 70s and they were retained as, you know, co-presidents of the company but it was owned by Taft Entertainment and Taft not only uh, had... uh, You know, it was before the huge broadcasting conglomerates that we have today. So they owned numerous television stations in the Midwest. They uh, needed, you know, syndication product for syndication deals. Hanna-Barbera could do that. And I believe Taft also owned certain uh, theme parks. And so that's how they also got the characters put out into theme parks and stuff. And they also had the heft then to be able to go make licensing deals. For things, although interestingly, the deal for Flintstone vitamins and I believe Flintstone cereals was made prior to the TAF deal and was made, as they say, in perpetuity. So, in other words, those deals are going to go on forever, they can keep making Flintstone vitamins and Flintstone cereals as long as they want. So, that was before deals got renegotiated every few years, that was just done like here, you want it, you got it. So, um, so he called me up and there was actually a job in the mail room so i started in the mail room and and about five weeks in i was i was a messenger i used to have to to do running around delivering stuff and about five weeks in a job came up in publicity and most of the guys that worked in the mail room wanted to go into production so they were waiting for like a production job to come up and i was like well this has to be better than driving around in my car in, in in la when it's hot out and I talked to the head of publicity, uh, my boss, Sarah Baisley, and she was like, well, there'd be a lot of like writing a bios and and talking to like directors and, and writing up press kits. And are you comfortable writing stuff? I was like, yeah. So I got to do that. And that was really fun because I got to do things like um, I remember there was a, they needed an article written for TV Guide uh, that um, I got to co-write with Mr. Hannah. And it was all about the Flintstones. And it was sort of updated versions of the Flintstones. Like, who would come visit? Who would come visit Bedrock now? And, and so I got to do stuff like, well, it would be Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? You know, it'd be all that kind of fun. You know, Flintstoneizing the modern stars, and that was that was really really fun that I got to do stuff like that.
0: That sounds like so much fun. What was your favorite part of doing that?
1: My favorite part of doing that was. Um, Actually, arranging, arranging, and going out on uh, interviews with the voice actors and stuff. So, like, Dawes Butler was a favorite of mine because Dawes would often get like you'd end up a lot of times on what they called morning zoo radio shows. You know, that's the guys that are going real crazy. And hey, wah, 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 oh, we got the traffic, and now it's a helicopter. <laughs> Woohoo! What's going on? And uh, Dawes Butler was actually, you, you know, he, he was actually very serious. He he. he was a very great voice actor. He was also a DJ and he also voiced Dr. Benton Quest on Johnny Quest. So that was actually his real voice was this deep sort of resonant voice that he would give and he'd say stuff. And so it was sort of weird that he also did all these talking dogs. And so people would ask him, they said, yeah, well, I see here on your credits, you do a lot of talking dogs. So, you know, I mean, you basically, you're, you're Astro and Scooby and they're sort of the same guy, aren't they? And then they'd go on. And Dawes would stop them and Say, no, no, no. Let let me correct you there. You know, Astro and Scooby are actually two different voices. You know, you see, Scooby is actually a very deep chest voice, like this. Ah, I want a pizza. <laughs> Whereas Astro is actually a a, a throat voice. Ry, rog, rye, Rorge, Rye, Rove you. So they're very, very different. And I would just sit back in awe of like the fact that he's sort of scientifically breaking down. The, the vocal differences between Astro and Scooby. And it was, it was great. And you know, Frank Welker, who was Fred, would come along on those interviews. And, and and of course he's now Scooby and he would come along and he would do voices. And it was just great to be in the room with them. Uh, and I got to meet a lot of people setting up interviews for them. I got to meet like little Richard and I got to meet uh, Tim. Tim Curry did some stuff for us. I got to meet, uh, oh I can't think of his name. Uh, the, the guy who was, um, Tim Matheson, who was the original voice of, uh, Johnny Quest. Uh, a lot of people don't know that, but when they did the new Johnny Quest, I set up a photo shoot between the voice of the new Johnny Quest and Tim Matheson came in, just, just posed with a Johnny Quest photo. And, and Tim Matheson was so nice about it and so professional. And I realized, well, yeah, this guy's been in the industry since he was a kid. So he, he knows how all of this works. Um, so it was just, it was a really fun time and it was really great setting up all those interviews and stuff.
0: How did you transition into writing episodes for various different series?
1: Well, when I was in Hanna-Barbera, I sort of got, I sort of got a reputation as a jokester. I did a lot of jokes around the studio. Um, I was also working as a stand up comedian and doing improv comedy. So people sort of knew me, uh, that I could do jokes and I could do that kind of stuff. And I got to be friendly with some of the people who were producers there. A good friend of mine, Lane Reichert who was the producer head writer on uh, pup named Scooby sort of knew this. And, and I I had gotten a writing agent because I was, I was actually specking what they call specking. I was writing scripts for live action shows like Miami vice uh, and trying, so trying to get into that, that work, the original equalizer on TV, trying, trying to get into that. And so I think he'd read one of my scripts or something, and he had this rewrite on a couple of scenes from pup named Scooby. And he asked me if I wanted to do it. And I said, sure. And then from there I did some, I just did some freelance scripts. They had a show called um Monster Tales, which was really great. It was done by a friend of mine uh called Don Doherty, and Don was a real classic cartoon gag man. And he um he'd been trained by uh, Tex Avery, one of the guys that helped train him. And um it, it was a it was a show where it was the pets of famous monsters. So it was like Frankenstein as a dog and all this kind of stuff. So the very first script I wrote was for Monster Tales, and one of the voice actors on that show was Jonathan Winters. So I got to go to the record and see Jonathan Winters reading my words and then riffing and being funny. And it was, it was fantastic. It was really great.
0: Awesome. Do you have any influences uh, on your writing?
1: Influences? Wow. Um, I don't know. I mean, a lot of my influences, you know, I mean, it's so weird. You get, and this is going to sound so, so uh, uh, odd, uh, but you know, like, it goes back to like Shakespeare. I did a lot of Shakespeare in college. Uh, I read a lot of Shakespeare in high school. You know, sort of the classic writers. You know, Hemingway and and his sort of, um, you know, really not Kurt, but 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 tight style. Um, I think um, screenplay wise, there are a number of guys. It 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 was funny because it. I remember when uh, when I was first getting into it, you could go. There was a, a store on. Hollywood Boulevard, and you go down and you could buy scripts, leftover scripts from old television productions. And I remember getting an early script for Simpsons, and it was written by Conan O'Brien. Uh, it was the classic, it was the monorail episode. And so, like, reading through that and seeing how do they play out their jokes, how do they how do they do this kind of stuff. I remember reading some early Miami Vices that were really, I don't remember who wrote them, but that kind of stuff. So, it, you know, it was really a combination of sources But a lot of it with, you know, writing for Hollywood, for screenwriting and television, a lot of that is just the formatting. So you have to really just sort of sit down and understand what the formatting of the scripts are. Um, and so that, you know, it was really helpful to actually read scripts, to actually be able to sit down and look at scripts. Um, and, and that was, that was a really fun thing to do.
0: And what are the differences between some of the more earlier writing, like writing for the newspaper and stuff and writing screenplays?
1: You know, I did a lot of feature writing for the newspaper, so feature writing, you know, a lot, a lot of lighter stuff, a lot of, you know, news, the way I was trained was strongly formatted, and you tried to, you know, pull out a lot of your opinion and just dispense information, uh, whereas, you know, like feature writing is a lot of fun and fluffy and how do you get people interested in stuff, so that, that was a lot more useful uh, also, that and ironically, sports writing because sports writing—if you've ever read the sports page—a lot of jargon, a lot of puffed-up stuff, a lot of funny way to introduce quotes. Uh, there's a lot more opinion on the sports pages because everybody has an opinion about who, who who's the better pitcher or who the Dodgers should be batting—you know, third in their lineup. Um, so those influences help, but but there's so much that goes into like learning the formatting of television writing. And specifically, you know, like sitcom writing is different format than screenplay writing at the time. Animation writing was very different because at the time in animation writing, they wanted you to suggest scene scenes and shots. They wanted you to sort of direct the episode on paper so that the networks knew what they were getting. And that's all changed. And I think that's good that it's changed because it gives the storyboard artists more freedom uh, to to interpret it the way they want. And it makes it easier on the writer. So it's 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 more gone the way towards um, screenplays. But a lot of that is learning how to write can, concise, funny dialogue, but also writing concise, instructive scene descriptions so that people know what's going on. But you're not doing too much flowery stuff or it's too long or it makes it really boring, you know, for people to read the script.
0: OK, what do you like about writing for animation specifically?
1: Um, I think. One of the fun things about it is it it can it can be almost anything you want in a lot of cases, unless you're doing a really heavy CG thing, which is a lot more like um, live action in that you have to be conscious of locations and setting and character count regular just uh, 2D animation, you you can almost go anywhere and do anything. uh, And that makes it really, really fun. You can play out ridiculous gags. You can do stupid stuff. You know, you can do all that great, you know, Ren and Stimpy, Rick and Morty kind of craziness, which is, I think, the real power of that medium is doing that kind of stuff, you know.
0: And you've written for quite a few superhero shows as well. So what are the differences between writing something for a superhero like Spider-Man, for example, and writing a Scooby-Doo episode?
1: Well, you know, Spider-Man is sort of more inherently dramatic. You know, it's sort of, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of times they use the phrase action comedy, and it really is m- more action comedy, whereas I would say Scooby-Doo is comedy action, if that makes sense. Um, Scooby-Doo starts more from a comedy perspective, because that's just who he is, right? But Spider-Man starts more from an action perspective, and they're both in their own unique ways about empowerment. Which I like, you know. That's where their similarities are. You know, Spider-Man is a teenager trying to figure it out, and how do I defeat this guy in the rhino suit while I have a math assignment due tomorrow? And Scooby-Doo is about, you know, overcoming your fears. You know, he he and Shaggy are the Fraidy Cats, and you know, are obsessed with food. And it's like, how do they? How do we get to see them overcome their fears? And and how do they do it so that it's it's also funny too? Whereas Spider-Man, that twist would be uh, in, in a more dramatic, uh, fashion, a more dramatic way. And, and his problem solving is, you know, he has to protect people. He has to actually save people from real threats. Whereas in Scooby-Doo in the end, right, they pull the hood off the guy. It's Mr. Carstairs, right? You know, I would have done it if it weren't for you meddling kids, right? It's, it's, we see it's all, uh, you know, hokum, it's all it's somebody trying to, to put one over on us. So I think that's the, ma- those are the main differences.
0: And how did you come to work on Scooby-Doo and Guess Who?
1: A good friend of mine, uh, Mike Ryan, was the producer on the show. So I, uh, he called me up and said, do you want to do some? I said, sure. And I'd worked with Mike uh, on, on several shows. And so that was, that was really, really fun to have a chance to do that.
0: And how is it decided as to who might be writing what episode?
1: Um, that's totally usually up to the production staff. Um, what's going to happen. I know on that particular show, you know, in a lot of cases it was, you know, you have to go out and see, okay, here's a list of people we'd love to have on the show as guest stars. Let's go out and see if they could possibly do it. Um, and then in some cases you get back, they can't do it or they'd like to do it. Will, will it fit in their schedule? Those kinds of things. There's a lot of practical considerations on that. And then I know, like with the Funky Phantom episode, they just knew they wanted to do a Funky Phantom episode, and they knew I I had a reverence and sort of knew all those old Hanna Barbera shows, and so they knew I could sort of handle the voices on that. And so that was, you know, that turned out really really fun to be able to do that. And then at the end to throw in not only the Funky Phantom but a Goober and the Ghost Chasers gag. You know, because Goober and the Ghost Chasers was basically Scooby Doo done by the Ruby Spears gang. You know, it was sort of a derivation on on that. So, so that was really fun to be able to throw all that together and and that they said, yeah, let's do that. I was like, okay.
0: Do you ever get to toss in any input as to what guest stars you might want to write an episode for?
1: I remember having some discussions with Mike about that. Like, you know, have you have you asked about this person? Have you asked about that person? And, you know, it's so, it's so complex because you don't know, have they already asked that person? Do they maybe not have that person on their list? Because I mean, like, like, especially in today's Hollywood, what is their reputation like? Do we want to put them on a kid's show, you know? um are they known for you know what's their reputation you know family wise are they as they would say family friendly there's just so many considerations um you know are they doing a movie maybe with warner brothers and it would be great to have them on the show because that helps support all the product that's going out you know so there's a lot of different considerations that go into it and so i think you know like a master list is made up and then they they throw stuff in there uh, and try to do it. I know we tried to do an episode, we tried to come up with an episode for Jabberjaws. And that involved C-Lab, was it C-Lab 2020, I think, and Jabberjaws. And it, we just couldn't quite make it work. It just didn't, just didn't all quite hold together. So sometimes that happens too. You write out a premise and you say, you know, hey, this would be great. Let's do Jabberjaws and let's make it underwater. and it will be crazy. And it just doesn't work out, you know.
0: How much freedom do you have in the writing process? Are you given an idea of what the plot should look like? Or can you just run wild with the characters?
1: Oh, no, it's it's all very, uh, you know, it's sort of strictly laid out. It's sort of like a logic problem. So, you know, the process is you'll get a premise, you know, uh, in this case, the premise for like Funky Phantom, I remember was, you know, they're visiting a Civil War battlefield and, you know, they come across these ghosts and are they you know uh, uh what's going on here and how do we explore the competition between the two teams and that was sort of laid out that way by mike because you know the historical aspect to the funky phantom uh and so we were folding in the history of the civil war um i was sort of I, I i'm i'm a history buff so i love the civil war so we were sort of careful i was careful to make it a fictitious civil war battlefield cuz i didn't want it to seem um too irreverent to make it a a real civil war battlefield that all this crazy stuff was happening on so so you start with a premise and 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 everybody approves it or goes around and makes their notes and this is what you and then you go to an outline so you know if a premise is one to two sometimes three pages the outline will then usually be you know 10 to 12 pages and you lay out again more of the action you actually lay out where the scenes will be Again, you get more notes and then you go to script. So it's all sort of carefully orchestrated and laid out and sort of building, you know, starting with the skeleton, building the inner structure, building the outer structure and, and then, you know, laying it all out there. So it, it's kind of like building a building. You know, you got to start with plans then you got to put up the skeleton of the building. Then you got to put up that, you know, the exterior and then you got to f- finish out the insides of it. So it's just a lot like that.
0: And is the monster of the week decided in that premise too, or do you get some input?
1: Uh, y- usually, yeah. Usually the monster of the week is going to be decided in the premise. So the premise will basically give you the beginning, the middle, and the end. You know, it, it lays that out so that you have an actual story because a story is a beginning, a middle, and an end. So you usually get that laid out, usually by premise. And that doesn't mean it can't change. That You know, somebody might say, you know, that villain's too close to one we've already used, or we've already got one that's already going forward, or... Um, somebody might say, what, what if we changed it, it made it like this. And so uh, in a lot of cases, but in a lot of cases, by the time you go to outline, you know who your bad guys are and basically what your beginning, your middle and your end is.
0: And what's your specific writing process?
1: Well, it's sort of that, uh, you know, um, in, in some cases on shows, depending on the show you're working on, they'll want you to do premises. So you can sit down and write 10 or 12 premises for a show, you'll know the basic concept. They're they're heading into the writing process and you submit those premises and then you get feedback and then you you know they'll say, We like this one, let's push it forward and let's do that. Um, in the case of the 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 guess who scripts, they already knew what they wanted to do just because that show sort of needed to, with the timing of having guests coming on and off, they sort of needed to know what direction they were going in to begin with. So I think they had a master list of Here's who we're trying to get. Here's how we're going to make it work. And so they came to me, already had a premise, sort of, you know, Funky Phantom set on a Civil War battlefield. It's a competition between the Funky Phantom crew and the Scooby crew. And it's like, okay. And then it's building the story out from there. Um, For me, you know, it's about, um, you know, sitting down every day and having to write. You got to sit down every day and you got to write and you, you got to hit those sort of your target deadlines of, you know, I do a lot of stuff where, let's say I've been given the go to script and I know a script is going to be usually between 28 and 35 pages I'll actually break down and say okay I, I in order to hit the deadline I got to write five or six pages a day and you sit down and you try to do that And some days maybe you'll write eight and some days you'll write you know fewer because you're being lazy or you're just stuck with a certain problem um, and sort of that so that's sort of the that's sort of the basics of it
0: What is it like to be able to write for these iconic characters?
1: Well, like I said, for me, it's pretty cool because having worked at Hanna-Barbera, you know, working on Scooby and having, you know, gotten to do, you know, I remember I I got to revise one of the bios on Dawes Butler. So I got to take him to lunch and talk to him about his career and all the stuff he'd done, you know, from Boo Boo Bear to, you know, uh, Scooby to Astro to all these, you you know, uh, to Johnny Quest. And so... To me, it's great to be able to sort of... I sort of hear those voices in my head when I'm doing it, you know, and then to be able to, you know, voice the Funky Phantom done by another great voice actor, Dawes Butler, who I got to meet and interview and sit down in his home studio with. And he was, you know, he was fantastic. And so it was, it was great to hear these guys. And they'd been old radio guys, so they, they got used to performing. I think both of them did radio content during World War II, where in a lot of cases they played all the characters. And so frequently in the studio, when both Dawes and uh, Don were performing, the audio engineers would have to tell them, can you redo that sequence because you didn't leave enough spaces between the characters? Because they were able to switch from one character to another so quickly because they were used to doing it on radio that the editors didn't have enough space in there if they needed to put a cut between the characters. So they'd have to Tell them, tell them to spread it out a little bit as they switched. And so, you know, to be able to write for the voices that I, that I you know, talk to them about and, and can hear in my head, it was really fun.
0: Who's your favorite character of the gang to write for?
1: Uh, oh, it's gotta be Shaggy and Scooby. Although Velma, I like writing for Velma too because you can, you know, Velma in a lot of cases, there's a lot of exposition going on there, but she's also smart. So it's great. You can drop all kinds, you can drop the knowledge in there and the crazy science stuff. Uh, and it's always fun to have a character like that. You know, like I, I wrote on the Back to the Future animated series two and Doc Brown, right? You can drop in, let's drop in all kinds of crazy. I did a baseball episode. So he's dropping in all kinds of crazy statistics about baseball because that's who he is. So it's it's always really fun to have s- smart characters too, you know?
0: Definitely. And were you able to be present for the record for both of those episodes that you wrote?
1: Those uh, I was not. Um, In many cases you can be, but I know in in that case, the schedules were just so crazy and demanding and getting like guests together with all that, um, you know, uh, it didn't work out. Um, I was kind of bummed because I love Weird Al and I'd actually met Weird Al before and he's very personable and very charming and, and very sort of self-effacing. He's just a great guy and he's sort of, you know, he he has a great outlook on the fact that he's become this sort of famous song parodier, and um, so I, I was bummed that I couldn't get get to go see the records. But I I understand too in the, in the you know when you're doing a production schedule sometimes it just doesn't work out. You just can't invite everybody who you know who'd like to be there.
0: Of the two episodes you wrote, do you have a favorite?
1: I am sort of partial to the Funky Phantom episode only because it's such classic Hanna-Barbera. And it's one of those things that back in the early days in Hanna-Barbera when I started, they probably wouldn't have done a crossover like that because sort of the eras didn't match. And it was like by the time I was there when Pup Named Scooby-Doo was going on, they probably wouldn't have dropped Funky Phantom into a pup named Scooby-Doo because they would have just said, "Well, well, you know, who cares? But it's such a great mashup now of class, you know, some of the classic Hanna-Barbera stuff that I love being able. I love being able to do that. I, You know, I I think being able to do uh, Weird Al stuff was really fun. But having classic Hanna-Barbera stuff thrown in there, to me, was the real treat.
0: More generally, what's your favorite show that you've written for? Or do you have a favorite episode that you've written over everything that you've done?
1: Oh wow! They're so so. There was a show done years ago that I loved uh, called Bruno the Kid, and it was uh, Bruce Willis's Bruno character, the, his his band, his harmonica playing band character. But he was a kid spy called Bruno the Kid. And what was great about those shows was they were incredibly silly spy things. They were written by guys who had done. Um, uh, sitcoms and so they had a very sitcom sensibility and we got to i got to throw in jokes i never thought would get into an animated show and those turned out really great those were some of the most fun i've had i, I think other than that you know my run on spider-man being being on staff on spider-man for all those years you know it took us like four or five years to get all that done was really great you know it it's it still i think that show still holds up um it, it was really great to to work on some of those classic episodes and classic villains that first season, there were a lot of meetings and in those meetings, Stan Lee would be in the meetings. And so you'd get to hear Stan's input and talk to Stan about stuff. And that was, that was really, really fun and important. And then, you know, a lot of the stuff I did with Lego was really fun too, because Lego has this great sense of like family friendly snark. So I got to, you know, like doing a Lego version of the Avengers is really fun because you get to poke fun at like Thor you know, in, in this Lego y fun way. And I was, uh, in particular, Thor, I was always told I was going too far with Thor because he has that weird <laughs> theatricality, right? And there's like, yeah, you've gone too far with Thor. You need to pull Thor. Okay, okay. You know, but, you know, it was like, you know, doing jokes like, you know, they're having a party and there's a bowl of mini meatballs. The mini meatballs are cold. This is a job for Millionaire. And he'd strike him with lightning. And it's such a stupid joke and such a stupid thing to use with his. Magic hammer, you know, reheating meatballs, but it was really, really fun to do stuff like that, you know, and, and people really sort of saw the fun of being able to do a Legoized version of something like I did Lego Frozen. What was great about doing Lego Frozen was all of the original voice I think we had every original voice actor come in from Frozen and do the Lego version because they were like, "Yes, we want to do the Lego version." And it was like, "Oh, okay, you know, fantastic. Come on in and do it. It was really fun.
0: That sounds like so much fun.
1: That one was fun. I got to actually be in the booth for that. And what was great was um, I got to do a lot of, uh, a, lot, a lot of, they wanted extra lines and improv lines. And so we got to do a lot of that. That, that was really fun uh, being able to throw in lines, you know, from listening and, and, and hearing them do a line and go, Oh, why don't you try it like this? Or, Oh, how about this one? And I'd write one real quick and they'd, they'd put it in the booth. And, and that, that was really, really fun to do that.
0: And moving more specifically to a mystery solving gang divided the funky fandom episode, what was it like to write a rivalry between the two groups?
1: That was really fun. I mean, it was really fun because you got to sort of play with all those tropes of the mystery hunting gangs and all that kind of stuff. And like how they were going to investigate it and how they, you know, because they sort of all match up one-on-one, you know, with, with, with each other in the gang. And so you could have these, these just funny, crazy rivalries. And, um and of course, then the whole idea that, you know, one group has a ghost with them and one group has a talking dog. And the fact that Scooby's afraid of ghosts and the ghost is afraid of ghosts. I mean, it was like, it was just stuff piled on top of stuff. And then of course they're actually solving a mystery too together. So that was, that was really, really, that was really, really fun. And of course the fact that they have like, you know, competing vehicles. And, you know, it was just, it was really, really cool because I think that's thats always a fun way to do it when you have a rivalry like that. And so being able to write to that rivalry, it sets up all, it just naturally sets up all kinds of gags, you know?
0: They're often knocking each other in the episode. Do you have a favorite jab or insult that happens in the episode?
1: I'm trying to remember. Gosh, this takes me back. There was some stuff I think that took place in the, in the diner where they're in the diner and, and it's Fred going after the oh God, the guy that leads the Funky Phantom group. And I can't remember that. that I remember that exchange specifically in the diner and there's some pancake gags, I think, with Scooby. And so that to me was a really fun scene to write because that sort of really sets up their rivalry. And it's really, it's, it's it's just sort of really, you know, we see sort of Fred taken out of his cool exterior because he's feeling so like, I got to defend my turf, you know?
0: And what was it like to bring back those older Hanna-Barbera characters and kind of reinvent them to uh, the year that it is now?
1: Well, it's really fun. Uh, You know, the other fun part about that is uh, what I love now is when you need to do research on that stuff, right? If you just Google it, you're going to find it out there somewhere on YouTube, right? And so you get to see how those gags were played out. And like, that's why like, especially on Funky Phantom, he had this classic gag he did when he was afraid where he'd become like a window shade which is kind of old because I don't know if that many people have window shades anymore. Right. We, we, we <laughs> have, have the blinds and, and those kinds of things. Right. And he would like pull on the bottom, the shade would roll up. And that, you know, that's kind of a classic gag that you pull on it and zip, it zips up. And he would do that to get out of a scene. You know, he'd be afraid and he wanted to get out. Right. And he did zip and, or, or like turn into like uh, you know, suddenly he has a ghostly canoe and he paddles way out of the scene, you know? And it was like, <laughs> it was so bizarre that I I loved being able to play with that stuff, you know, cuz that is very cartoony, you know.
0: And you mentioned that uh you're a bit of a Civil War buff. Uh what was it like to be able to kind of bring that aspect into it as well?
1: You know, to me that's that's the really cool stuff too when you can bring in, you know, hopefully something that you can say, okay, maybe they'll you know, kids watching somebody will then get interested in the Civil War or want to know more or Say was this a real battle, or what's going on? And so, when you sort of bring in, at least just in that one, at least touching or a flavor of actual history, to to me that's always great, you know, because then you can, you know, especially in a show that's set, you know, sort of currently not a sci-fi show or not, you know, a Batman show that's set in an alternate world you you can bring in real world stuff and hopefully you're getting people interested in stuff that, you know, really they should be interested in it. They should be interested in that history.
0: Do you know what the thought process was to make the guest star Abraham Lincoln?
1: Uh, I do not. I think it was just that, you know, it seemed like, you know, Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War, it was important. And so, you, you know, let's let's make it about that. And, you know, this important time period. And so it I, I think... I think it just worked out story-wise. I think it just integrated really well in the fact that they were in a Civil War battlefield. And so, yeah, so let's, let's bring in Lincoln, you know?
0: Moving towards the Weird Al episode, uh, what was your reaction when you found out you were going to be writing an episode with Weird Al in it?
1: I was so jazzed because I went back to, I actually found it on YouTube, and I remember I was in Mike's office, and I was saying, there is one of the earliest videos of Weird Al Playing one of his parody songs, and I don't remember which song it was, but you know, Weird Al used to have a guy that would accompany him. Weird Al would be playing his accordion and singing, and this guy would be playing the suitcase and he'd be banging on it like a drum, and he had like kazoos attached to it and bells, and it was the craziest, weirdest thing. And I just wanted to be able to push it in all directions. And I remember in early meetings, I was like, can I have a kid who wants to play the suitcase or the kazoo or whatever, you know, and we tried to figure out, can we do that? Can we make it work? And then we specifically focused on, you know, the accordion that it was because the accordion is a ridiculous instrument, too, you know.
0: (laughs) And how difficult is it to write someone like that into an animated show?
1: Well, Weird Al, I mean, fortunately, Weird Al sort of has this big personality already, right? You know, the, the Aloha shirts and the wild hair and the glasses, and he plays an accordion, you know, I mean, other than playing the bagpipe, I can't think of it, or a banjo, I can't think of a sort of a wilder, more comedic instrument, you know, I mean, the accordion is great, you know, because he can do stings, whee, you know, he can he can play a crazy song all of a sudden, and he sort of lends himself to animation better than most, because just because of who his persona is and and actually some of that isn't persona that's just him right that's just sort of who he is and how he's established himself and so it just it lends itself almost perfectly to being able to do that kind of crazy wild stuff that you can do in animation
0: and what do you have to do to stay true to his personality to get him in an animated episode
1: um, well, I think a lot of it is just knowing. You know, do you sort of know his songography? You know, you know. Yeah, I remember watching uh, more YouTube. You, you know, like I watched a lot of his his videos again. You know, I'd seen him before, but I, I think I watched like a surgeon again and uh, eat it. I think I watched eat it because he has this very again like the Lego stuff. Weird Al has a very sort of family friendly snarkiness, right? It's not. It's not necessarily. It's not mean spirited. It's, he's skewering people by doing the songs he does, but it's, it's, it's very fun. And so it's from that fun point of view. And so same thing in, in the way that like Scooby-Doo has this sort of fun take on ghosts and what's going on and, and monsters and stuff like that. Weird Al lends to that because you can immediately break the tension if they're say sneaking through a cave and it's dangerous and he's playing musical stings on his accordion, right? It's just great.
0: And talking about those musical stings, did you write the words for those?
1: I wrote some words. I don't know how much of my original stuff got in because I know, you know, he's such a creative guy that I know they allowed him the freedom to like, if you want to do something, you can do something. If you want to follow what's down there, what's down there. In a lot of cases with voice actors, especially really talented voice actors, you know, like Frank Welker. um, And I know with Dawes Butler and a lot of the other voice actors I've worked with. Uh, throughout the years um you you can say to them you know just give me a couple of takes as written and then they they'll, they'll a lot of times they'll say can I try something sure please try something or they'll say I, I have something I think would be fun and they'll do their own take on stuff and especially when you got a guy like Weird Al you actually want that because it it shows that they're sort of invested in the story and they're sort of invested in bringing their own voice to that story and and h- how it can work um, and that kind of stuff is really fun too.
0: And do you have a favorite part within that episode?
1: I would say, I think one of my, well, I think there's, there's a great part in there where he's, um, all, all the kids are leaving or their parents are coming to pick him up. And he's, you know, he's talking to the kids and we're first introduced to the camp kids and the, and the whole accordion idea. And there's some great stuff there with just weird Al and the fact that he's wearing an accordion the whole time. And then, I think that the Scooby stuff where they're sneaking around and he's playing stings on the accordion to me, that's, that's the kind of stuff that's like, it's so unique to his character that really no other character can do that. Right. There's, there's no other, you know, character that can have an accordion strapped on and be doing stuff like that. You know,
0: Moving back a little bit more generally, uh, why do you think that a cartoon dog solving mysteries has had so much staying power over, you know, the last 50 years?
1: Well, I think it's the, you know, that it's the relationship between all of them, you you know, the gang and Scooby and Shaggy, it's really a family, you know, it's sort of a crazy family, and they all have their roles, and they all, they all do, you know, certain things that are important to the group. And so it, it makes it this level of, of, it's recognizable, it's, sort of family friendly. You you could sit down as a family and watch these shows and everybody's going to get a little bit of something fun out of it. And I think just, you know, the idea that it's a talking dog. I think we love to personify our pets and our animals that are around us. You know, I have a dog. I love dogs. And so I'm always doing that. I know people do that with their cats, you know, and the grumpy cat memes. And so I think being able to have this big, goofy, you know, and he's a great Dane, right? So, you know, I think the only other like Marmaduke, you know, they're, they're sort of big, funny, goofy dogs that normally, if you looked at a great Dane, you'd be quite intimidated by it. They're big animals, you know, and I, I had a friend who had a great Dane. He said, yeah, we had to be careful what we put on top of the refrigerator. Cause he could actually stand on his hind legs and get to the top of the refrigerator. And you go like, Jesus, it's like a horse, right? It's not like a, it's not like a dog. And so, I think um, the fact that it's a Great Dane that's goofy and funny and scared of stuff and more actually like what Great Danes are, I think that's so relatable to people. And I, I think kids say, "Well, wow, I'd love to. I'd love to have a pet like that." If if you don't have a pet, you want to have a pet like that. If you do have a pet, you want to think your pet is goofy and silly and funny like Scooby, but also could protect you, you know, and be your pal, you know. So I think that's a universal thing.
0: I think that covers all of the questions that I had for you. Is there anything else that you wanted to add at all about Hanna Barbera or Scooby or anything?
1: No, I just want to say, you know, thanks, thanks to you, Alexa. It's always fun to talk to people who who are, you know, appreciative of this and into this and and looking to to ask more questions and learn about it. I again having that curiosity for the world and and figuring it out. You know, the other thing I would say is. I certainly hope that anybody that watched that Funky Phantom episode would want to learn more about Lincoln and the Civil War and, and particularly U.S. history about that era, because we're still living that era. We're still living the consequences of that war and those decisions. And those decisions, speaking of the Funky Phantom, go back to the founding of our country. And so you can trace that timeline all the way up to what's happening in modern in modern times. And And we can't understand what's going on with the protests and things uh, on our streets now, unless we go back and look at all that history and how how far we've come. And so same thing with the Weird Al episode. I would hope that kids would want to learn more about dinosaurs, right? You know, Um, because that's, that's sort of a fun thing there. You know, the fact that we put a paleontologist in there and, and actually uh, had some stuff about dinosaurs in there to me, um, you know, let let's, let's let your inquiring mind go and really sort of look at that stuff and 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 have fun and understand it
0: definitely and just before we end here do you have any recent projects that you'd like to promote
1: uh i just did a series that was released last year on netflix called legend quest and it is like a mexican version of scooby-doo so it's produced by a mexican animation company called anima and The difference is it's a gang of kids solving mysteries, but the monsters are real, and the monsters are from world myth, world myth and legend. So they go around the world trying to see what's going on with these world myths and legends, and there's a larger plot going on. So it is very serialized. It's really fun. Had a great time doing it. There's a lot of great monsters uh, uh, from the world in, in, in that series that you can look at and go like, oh, okay, well, here's, you know here's some really great monsters we can look at and figure out who they are and how do they, how do they fit in the world? And, you know, like a Japanese Tsukigama doll, you know, that, that, that can turn people into dolls and there's just creepy fun stuff in that. So uh, if you, if you get a chance, watch it, it's legend quest on uh, Netflix.
0: Awesome. And uh, do you have any social media channels where people can follow what you're up to?
1: I am. I am uh, on Twitter. I'm at Hoff Rights, H O F F Rights. I'm on uh, Instagram at the same address. Uh, yeah, at Hoff Writes. I'm also at Hoff Comedy because I'm, I've gone back to doing stand up and improv. So you can catch some of my comedy shows online and my silly things. I have a YouTube channel. If you go to Mark Hoffmeyer YouTube, you can see some of my crazy comedy stuff on there as well. And uh, I talk about. I talk about, I I have a comedy bit I do about my time on Power Rangers. So that was fun too.
0: Awesome. Uh, Well, perfect. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Mark.
1: Oh, thank you, Alexa. Thank you for having me. And uh, uh, I enjoyed it. So thank you.
0: And that concludes today's episode. Another huge thank you to Mark Hoffmeyer for taking the time out to be on the show. For more groovy content, be sure to check at UnmaskedSD on Twitter, at UnmaskedSDpodcast on Instagram, or at UnmaskedSDpodcast.com. If you like this episode and want to hear more, also make sure to check those social media channels or the website. Or you can listen to older episodes wherever you like to get your podcast fix. And if you want to follow Mark, you can find him on Instagram and Twitter at HoffWrites or at comedy. Thanks for listening, and keep an ear out for the next episode. Scooby-dooby-doo!